You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia. And now, your hosts, Scott, Miles, and Anna. Your table is ready. It's long and This is the capital. We have a little problem with our infancy peaks, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. Well, welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 195. Yeah, we are encroaching upon episode 200 here. Only five episodes to go. We got to start talking about what we're going to be doing for the big shebang. But tonight... Just me again, because we're recording in the same night that M was supposed to join N, who's router, and uh, crapped out. She loves Verizon, by the way. You should Facebook or text her to say, hey, how's, how do you feel about Verizon? And she'll tell you. Believe me, she'll tell you. Miles is at class again tonight, but we're gonna we're here to share an interview that I did with Jay Smith from HG World. We're gonna find about a, about how he got into writing, how he got into audio drama, why audio drama, some of the audio dramas he he's done, and we're gonna do some commentary on just the podcasting and uh, and um, and writing industry itself. So I hope you enjoy this interview. And um, again, Jay Smith will be at Farpoint as well. So if you want to meet him in person, just come on down to Farpoint. And if not, you can find him on Facebook. But uh, appreciate you taking time out of your life to join us here at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. We're serving up our interview with Jay Smith tonight. To the Sci-Fi Diner podcast tonight. Tonight it is just me. Am's having some internet issues. Miles, I don't know. He's all having class somewhere. Um, but with me tonight is Jay Smith from HG World. Welcome to the podcast, Jay. Hey, Scott. I, I, it's me. I drive people away. So I that's right. Uh, hopefully not. We you know. I've, honestly, Jay, it, uh, we're introducing you like you've never been in the podcast before, but. But you have, at least your voice has been on, because we, we aired a ton of interviews from Infect Scranton last year, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so they would have heard your voice interacting as we introduced the different segments, The Walking Dead, the, the Romero series, and then we did the, um, then you interviewed, um, oh, that guy from Ghostbusters, no one ever heard of before, Bill Murray. Dan Aykroyd. Oh, yeah. See, I didn't even get it. I didn't even get it right. <laughs> if I had gotten Bill Murray, that I, that would have been a completely different planet. Was, was he? Was he even? In, he was in Ghostbusters, right? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. He wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. See, so I at least was in the right. I was in the right genre. I don't know why I couldn't remember the name. But that's it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure only, he doesn't mind. I'm, I'm only. I'm only drinking coffee. We're. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I don't even need anything else to be loopy tonight, but. Uh, anyway, so Jay, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I just got back from Seton Hill University, my first term in their MFA writing program, which was five days of just 12-hour days of working and living with a, a lot of really talented, creative people. 
and not having a chance at all to actually write. <laughs> just being in, in classes about writing and listening to people who are professional writers, people who are, are actually published and are aspiring. Just it, It's just very energizing and very um, rejuvenating. And, uh, and you know, I've been trying to spend the last couple of days getting into HG World's uh, Season 2 and writing my thesis project, The Billion Smithereens, and trying to get back into that, that craft again. So it's been really, really fun. Awesome. Well, now, did you find as a writer, like, I mean, it's not like you're saying, oh, I want to be a writer, let me go to university. I mean, you've been writing for a while. Going in there having tested your chops in the writing world and been out there and publicizing your work, both through HG World and other writings you've done, um, do you feel like it gave you a different perspective going in than maybe some of the people? Or did, were all the people published writers? I mean, how did that, how did that work? No, there's, there are a few... Uh, published writers, uh, romance writers, and some science fiction writers in the class. Um, the, obviously, the, the mentors and the professors are all published. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I come from a unique perspective because I'm, I was the only person there, with the exception of one of the profs, Scott Johnson, who had any experience at all in audio drama. So everybody else is, is prose or poetry in one popular fiction genre or another. But uh, you know, the, the question that's that's asked is, have you been published and where? And my only answer is, well, I've got a couple things on Amazon.com, but I wouldn't necessarily call them published. But right. I do have five years worth of audio drama, and I have a listenership of X and all this other stuff. So, you know, it was it was interesting because I came to it with a different answer than I think they got from others. Well, it, it was a nice mix of a nice mix of backgrounds. You know, I, that's almost it's interesting because you ask, well, have you been published anywhere? That 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 you know, a couple of years ago, that would have been a very uh, cut and dried answer you know you either are a published in some sort of publication or not but with right. the advent of the web podcasting audio drama and 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 so many other mediums that becomes kind of a nebulous question now mm -hmm. i think it really comes down to what direction is the money flowing if the money's going to the writer then you're doing something right if the money's going away from you in terms of you're paying for the bandwidth or you're paying for print on demand or whatever it is that's the opposite direction. I think that we're trying, I'm trying to get the, the current to flow in the opposite direction. So I'm making more than I'm spending. You know I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. Even if it's just a little bit. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, and that goes for podcasting or, or writing your next novel is podcasting does cost money. Although as, as you know, and I don't think a lot of listeners understand the, the, the time that you're investing as well as the, you know, swiping the debit card to pay your bandwidth every month and sound effects and music and all that other stuff. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, you deal with the hosting and you, you pay for your, unless you're going to go with some of the free hosting, you pay for your hosting, your website, you pay for the Lipson, um, even though costs can be minimal. Uh, but you're looking, you're, you could be looking at a couple hundred dollars a year. Um, and that doesn't mean, I mean, if you need upgrade equipment, then it gets, the price tag goes even higher. But Great. But yeah, so you definitely want to, <laughs> I haven't gotten podcasting flowing the right direction yet. I'm going to be honest, Jay. So, <laughs> <laughs> very few people do, yeah. and I, I hear that so when we work with John Drew, and, and he goes through a monthly expenditure, and he's got all of these shows under his umbrella now, and it's it, it has to cost something. Yeah, he just does does it out of the the love for the for the medium and genre, and just to get his work out there. Well, I think, and I, honestly, I think that's the reason we started podcasting was to share our ideas, our work, our interviews, our stories. And, and give them a platform. And we, while we want to get paid, if we don't, it doesn't mean we're going to stop doing it. 
Oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So. I didn't get into HT World and we to to get paid, and we've been doing this for five years, and if <laughs> it's going to cost us more down the road. Yeah, well, but it's uh, absolutely worth it. Yeah. Absolutely worth it. So let's find out a little bit about you, Jay. So uh, when you got into science fiction, what was the one moment that you knew you were a science fiction slash horror slash fantasy geek? Wow. Um, well, I grew up on syndicated television broadcast, so probably reruns of Star Trek. At least that got me interested in it. Probably when I first read Repent Harlequin said the TikTok Man by Harlan Ellison. Oh. When I got to the end of that story, that's when I knew I wanted to write speculative fiction. I didn't even know who Harlan Ellison was. He wasn't a personality. It was just the, the craft in the, the story that made me say, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> well, you know, uh, that story I still teach to my kids. E- each year when seniors that come through my class, they read that story. Mm-hmm. And it's just as fresh now as it was when it was first written. Just as relevant. It's timeless. Yeah. yeah. If not, if not even more so, because I find that as we become more infused in technology, that we're so, we, we suddenly are required to be places on time and answer emails in a timely fashion, at least in the professional mm-hmm. business. And suddenly, if you don't, you're late. I mean, it's, I think that it, in, in a, especially in American culture, it was, it's mm-hmm. such an irrelevant, we're so geared and put put out her time so not to mention that it's only it's one of the only harlan ellison stories i can actually teach wow <laughs> as, yeah, far, as, far, as far as language goes and content <laughs> that's true so well, it's an interesting it, it dovetails nicely to audio drama because i i really wasn't an avid reader i have a very short attention span which i for, for what i do is kind of a, a drawback but i got into speculative fiction by listening to old time radio mm. so dimension x x minus one um escape all those anthology shows which were written by the masters that's what really turned me on to the the storytelling in short form so i would i'd go through my dad's archives or i'd go to the library and i'd have all these cassettes of hp lovecraft and robert a robert w chambers and uh just people i didn't know their names just i was so engrossed in their stories that I, I realized that I wanted to write that stuff one day, but I was always entertained by the, the format of the, of the storytelling and, and audio drama. And it didn't need to be over the top. Uh, it didn't need. It could be for a general audience and still tell a good story. It didn't need to be profanity. It didn't need to be um, mature themes. It just was. It just as good in the 1930s as it is in 2014. Mm, mm. Yeah, for me, uh, one of the things that really sold me. Uh, and Harlan Ellison, for example, mm-hmm. is have you ever heard him read his stuff? Yeah, yeah. yeah he is just a f- absolute phenomenal reader, in my opinion. And uh, he is, yeah. And I and so each year I, I I bought I think he has two collections out. He might have more now, but he had two and I bought and I bought both of them and I play them. I play the Repent Harlequin. They read it, but they read along with him reading it. And he's just a great. That, that's great Midnight reader. in the Sunken Cathedral. Is that what you have? Yeah, I have. Well, there's that that there's that one and. Um, I have no mouth and I must scream is the other one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but man, uh, and, I, and I own a lot of his collections and I've read through them and they're just phenomenal collections, but I haven't, not some of his most recent stuff I haven't, but. Yeah, his On the Road series, I forget who publishes them, but recordings of his lectures and his uh, nonfiction work are just as good. They're, they're great to listen to because he goes <laughs> off on rants that make Dennis Miller 
look like an amateur. <laughs> great stuff. Yeah, well, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to check it out. You said that's on the road press or something like that. I believe so. There's, I think, four or five different versions. And hey, I have access to the internet, so why don't I look it up for you? Oh yeah, we are recording live in the internet, so we could find it out, couldn't we? But yeah, Deep Shag Records. Yes, on okay. the road with Ellison, volumes one, two, up to infinity. <laughs> there you go. So, so, so if he can make a buck out of it, he's going to do it. <laughs> but that I mean, it's it, worth it. Yeah, it's it's, it, yeah. We, we say that, in all, but in all fairness, uh, he's one of the few people I would say is really worth doing that. So, mm-hmm. so, but yeah. Um, so where were we at? Oh, uh, stuff that we got in. Uh, how you got into science fiction and uh, some of the stuff that influenced you growing up. When did mm-hmm. you know? When did you know, Jay, that you wanted to be a writer? Let me. Let me. Let's let's take that angle. I think when I had exhausted every other social and technical skill, then realized that writing was the only thing I could really do well. <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't going to go out for sports. I, when I, when I was in high school and, and junior high and back to elementary school, I was in theater and I was in chorus, but I, that really didn't interest me all that much. Uh, so my father thought I was a danger to myself and others by handing me tools. So that didn't last very long. Basically <laughs> I had a typewriter and an underwood. And as long as I could crank out stories, I was happy. Hmm. You know, I could just, bang on an old typewriter, put out a story that wasn't all that good, but I was getting better. And it seemed to amuse people. So when I started to get reactions from people reading my stuff, saying, wow, this entertained me, or that was funny, or that scared the crap out of me, I thought, wow, you know, I could, man, that, that's something I really want to continue doing. So, so they encouraged you by uh, chuckling at your stories, and suddenly it was like, oh, I got to write more. <laughs> yes, this is, yeah, yeah this actually works. I, yeah. Can, I can continue doing this, and people will... If not like me, they like my stuff. Do you still have your Underwood? No, that unfortunately that that was that's in a landfill somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, for me, I think when for me for me growing up, it wasn't we we may have had a typewriter growing up, but I don't remember using it much. When I went to college, you handed me the big bulky word processor with a three and a half inch floppy disk. But oh yeah, you remember yeah. those things? Yeah, they were classic. Yeah, there's the electric word processor with one line of LED text that you could go back and correct. Yeah, thermal paper. Oh man! Oh man! 1980s technology, very creative but impractical as hell. Yeah, but you know, for the time, it was uh, it was cutting edge. It was cutting edge. Yeah. So uh, you could write it all out and hit print. It was like a machine gun going off for an hour. It was awesome. Yeah, so 1990 is when I went, when I hit college with that thing. By the time I exited college in '96, we had computer labs of just bank after mm-hmm. bank of computers, boxy computers in comparison to day standards, but still. Yeah. yeah. But but yeah, well, very cool, very cool. So uh, that kind of got you going. And was it always? Did you always write kind of in that whole speculative sci-fi fantasy horror vein? Yeah, I think I got into it because I could. I didn't have to know anything real. You know, when you're young, you don't know a whole lot. You, what you what you learn is on television, and uh, you don't have a whole lot of life experiences to draw on. At least I didn't. So being able to invent something whole cloth and saying, this is my fantasy world that I've created, and the elves are this way, and the magic works that way, that was a bit of a conceit. So scaring is universal. Kids especially, they are always scared of something. So oh, I could yeah. write a scary story and draw on that primal urge that everybody has. But in terms of writing something of an emotional depth, I had to grow up a lot before I could write a, 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 a general popular fiction story, I think. Right, right. 
hey, you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. And that's not to say that, that, that fantasy and science fiction are, are cheap, that, because I just heard a lot of my classmates draw swords on me. It's more about the, the real story requires an emotional depth that you typically don't have. And that, that's required, if you read George R. R. Martin, that emotional depth is there. Right. But when you're a kid, you can fake it. Right. You know, you get away with writing a cheap sto- swords and sorcery story, and people go, you know, one day he's going to add something to that that's going to make it a good story. Yeah. But it's a good start. Well, you know, I think about that in, in, when, you take, when you take even pop sci-fi movies. Um, mm-hmm. Many of them do lack the emotional depth. Not all, yeah. but many do. And, and then you get a movie that comes out like Gravity that's not really hailed by a sci-fi, as be, sci-fi community as being, ooh, look sci-fi, but it is. Uh, but there's huge emotional depth, so much so it gets popular attention. And so I right. think that uh, when you have characters that have that emotional depth, it really doesn't matter what, what genre or story you're telling. They have to have right. it. So. Yeah, I think it was a, a comfortable training ground for me to, to ape a lot of the existing stories that I had heard and try to do, do twists to them. And then when I was ready, I, I, going through a lot of the things that I, I went through in college, you know, having you know, having kids really gives you a lot of experience that you can draw on. That you start to feel pain and fear that you didn't expect in life. Mm-hmm. That that tends to lend itself to to the tension and, and conflict in your stories. Oh, yeah. So, reaching forty, I think I've achieved a level of, of fear and loathing that helps me tell tell something that resonates with other listeners and other readers. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, so let's, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, the series that we've kind of mentioned here. So you began writing a series, HG World. When did that process begin for you? Um, probably as far back as 2005. I, I wanted to tell the story of uh, recession and change. I was seeing a lot of things in Pennsylvania in general about industry changes, uh, technology changes, and small towns basically becoming ghost towns in a short period of time. There's some places where you have an older community in a small town that's nestled away um, that doesn't have a... Uh, it's not one of those communities like outside of Harrisburg where there's a Walmart every half a mile and you, you're not wanting for anything. This was like a, a very small, uh, tight-knit community that was fed off of one industry and that industry dies. And how does that affect these retirees and people on disability? And I, I, I thought, you know, that's not really an interesting story to tell just that way. How do I make that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went to a, a, a Home Depot with my son Holden, and he said, you know, he's looking up all the big, tall chain link fences, which are really sturdy, and all the racks and all the for- basically fortifications. I said, you know, this would be a great place for to to um, hide out from a zombie apocalypse. But, yeah, you're right. It would be. It would be scary as hell, but these are really thick concrete walls, and you've got all these supplies here. Yeah. And I started putting those two elements together. Was, you know, what if What if you had a, a small town, its only industry was this farm that went bankrupt, and the only thing that can save the town is this big corporate house and garden warehouse thing that crops up and employs everybody but then zombies show up what how can we compare those metaphors the the change that is forced on these people to adopt this corporate entity in its life and then they have to, everybody has to adapt to the fact that the world is ending and everyone's turning into flesh-eating mutants mm. so those those stories started to mesh together better than i expected and 
Um, it was a, it's a story about change. It's a story about the inevitability of death it's, and how do we cope with things we can't control, but told in a way that I think you don't have to go that deep to have a, an appreciation for the story. Was HG World always going to be an audio drama for you? Uh, yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm a recovering filmmaker. I <laughs> would have loved to make a zombie film, but I suck at filmmaking. I have no visual sense. So it was something I would either do as a novel, which I didn't have the patience for at the time, or do it as a collaborative media. And it was just at that point where I was starting to see people putting audio drama uh, programs together for the Internet for the first time. I thought, wow, yeah, I want to get in on that because I I love audio drama. So I figured that was the best way to tell the story cheaply and with the broadest uh, collection of cast members. Yeah, and probably uh, a way to give it almost to the the broadest audience when we're talking about radio drama these days. Yeah. So, um, so first episode of HG world, uh, hit the internet when late spring of 2009. So four we years, a, about four hmm? year process, huh? What's that? It was about a four year process for you then from the beginning yeah, of the idea. Yeah, it was an off and on idea. I mean, life intervened and, you know, it didn't really come together as a real story for a while, for a while. Yeah. Oh yeah, so so wait, so you so before before the first podcast aired, you you gathered a collection of voice actors and everyone to kind of tell the story. How did that process all work for you? I mean, we don't need the nitty gritty, but give us some of the idea, the highlights. You have to tell a good story first. I think when HG World began, it was a big experiment. I wanted to tell a story, but I wasn't quite sure where that story was going. And I really didn't care because I didn't know if we could even accomplish it. There were bandwidth issues. The internet wasn't as fast. There weren't the large number of support groups that are out there now for audio drama. So I was able to do one episode, and I thought, if we succeed in this, then we'll see what happens. I was able to get a small group of people who I'd met on LiveJournal and Facebook to just lend their voices, low-tech, and once we had proof of concept that we could actually do this and put it out, we started getting feedback. People actually liked the episode and they wanted to hear more. So we expanded the process. I met a guy named Mike Stokes, who was a voice or the, the husband of somebody who did a voice for the show. He happened to be an audio engineer and we hit it off and he lent his talent. And uh, the people who were in the show started using it as a kind of a calling card for themselves. So we networked to other actors and built on that small sh- uh, show that really had limited production value, but had a, had good potential, if you will. Mm-hmm. And from there, we branched out to places like the Voice Acting Alliance and Audio Drama Talk and Pendant Audio and basically said, we really want to work with you. We, we love audio drama. We can't pay you, obviously, but we, we know that you dig audio drama. We dig it. Here are some auditions we're doing. Mm. Um, Flash forward five years after however many episodes, we've got three seasons, uh, very good reviews. We've won a couple of awards. I started a new project called Hidden Harbor Mysteries with Brian Lincoln, who's a producer on HG World. And the first thing Brian said to me is, I want to know the beginning of the story and the end, and I want to know the process that you're going to, to use to get from one to the other. Because HG World is a lot of fun, but we don't have a map to the end and we don't know how long it's going to take and I don't want to be doing this show three years from now (laughs) and still not know. Right. So Brian is one of those guys who 
he is process and result oriented in equal measure. And we've worked together to one craft story that I think that is is very good. And through our reputation of HG World and the Diary of Jill Woodbine, we were able to win the confidence and the participation of a, a fantastic cast. So through a reputation built on delivering quality work, we're able to create a whole new show that takes it to a different tier of production. Nice. We're able to assemble people. If they believe in your work, they will give of themselves and their talent to make it even better than it looks on the page. Nice. And all of those other elements will come and uh, make a great show. Well, so let's um, let's give our listeners uh, who may not be familiar with the work just a short overview. You mentioned let's do HG World, let's do the Diary of Joe Woodbine, and then let's do Hidden Harbor Mysteries. Can you give us a short synopsis of each of the shows that you kind of have out there? Sure. HG World is the story of... Uh, People who are surviving the zombie apocalypse. We don't get into a lot of zombie gore because it's audio. You really can't focus on the dead so much as the living. We take a different track uh, from shows like We're Alive in that it's not so much action-oriented as it is human drama. And I've always been more fascinated by the story of people who are in a crisis and how their true selves come out when the chips are down. So HG World is about people who are stuck inside this house and garden warehouse that's become its own government, its own corpocracy. And there's a leadership within the management structure, and they govern the refugees. There's also the story of people who have taken to a church, and their, their salvation is more spiritual in nature. And then there's also a military contingent, uh, a United Nations group that's, that was originally hired or allowed into the to the United States to clean up all the corpses, but have since become peacekeepers among the survivors. So you have kind of a dirty dozen, you've got this um, uh, spiritual crisis, and then you have this uh, satire of corporate America within the confines of the story. And that goes on for a couple of seasons. The Diary of Jill Woodbine is actually a spinoff. It tells the story of this 23-year-old college student uh, voiced by Veronica Jaguer. It's more of a patio novel than it is anything else. It tells how she came to HG World and how she investigates the secrets that um, keep everything from falling apart. And what she finds sets up the action for the final season, uh, which will be probably next year or so. So awesome. there's a lot of intrigue and action and human drama and suffering and misery and cool stuff like that. Awesome. Awesome. So and Hidden Harbor Mysteries is different. Yeah. Hidden Harbor Mysteries is a 1930s-style pulp action uh, audio drama. We're trying to do 1930s style with a few modern sensibilities. It's it's uh, stars Veronica Jaguer and uh, uh, Laura Nicole and Jim Patton, uh, Stacey Dukes, a bunch of folks who are in HG World and the Gugis and, and the Diary of Joe Woodbine uh, who are coming together to do a show that sounds like it's done in a studio and it's done 15 minutes every day like a soap opera. And it's all action adventure, like The Shadow and The Green Hornet and I Love a Mystery and all those really cool shows from the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, what uh, do we have an uh, idea of the plot of it, or is each kind of show its own mystery? For Hidden Harbor, it's a serial. So there's an overarching plot where there's a small town kind of model in Wilmington, Delaware. It's written in from the perspective of a pulp writer in the 1930s who's kind of a futurist. He's writing a story in 1936 that is set in the 1940s, and he believes that the Second World War will take place 
but that the Russians will crush the Nazis. So the, the Second World War that he sees coming up will be Allies versus Stalin. And there's political intrigue that's based on that futuristic conceit. So there are Russian spies and there are uh, German Nazi rocket scientists working with the United States. And there's uh, the, the main character is a, a heroine very similar to The Shadow and also more along the lines of Ghost from Dark Horse Comics. Okay. Kind of a kick-ass woman, strong woman character, which would be completely apocryphal for a 1930s audio drama. Oh, yeah, obviously. But a great supporting cast. So there's there's some elements of kind of the Joss Whedon Scooby gang, too, and uh, a lot of the 1930s tropes of, oh, my God, the terrorists are burning down the orphanage. We've got to save them. And there's... there's uh, mob bosses that have to be thwarted and fights that have to be fought and gunfire and car chases and all sorts of cool stuff. And now are there any, uh, did you guys start putting out episodes for Hidden Harbor yet? No, we're right in production now. Brian has uh, shared all the scripts with the main characters. We're still casting some small roles, but we expect to be out sometime in the summer. And we're going to do it every day for three weeks. We're going to release it just as it would have been released in the 1930s. Every day for three weeks. And so will that be, will that, will that be like a, a season or is it, will that be the beginning to the end of Hidden Harbor? That's going to be season one in terms of how I produce it. If people like it, then Brian and I will, will consider how we want to move forward. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's awesome. So, um, so these are the three audio projects. Have you done anything else, uh, uh, like in writing, other than audio drama? Uh, I've I've written a, a novel called Rise of the Monkey Lord, which was released back in two thousand five. It's available on Amazon.com. It's kind of a gamer novel in this in the style of people who grew up playing role playing games and fledgling video games. It's about the characters within the video games trying to stop their universe from being rebooted by the creator. It's very long. It's got a lot of pop culture in jokes. I think it's funny. It's it's not as polished as I would like, but it's definitely worth a buck to read on a summer day. Oh yeah. And I also have a a, a book of uh, what I call aggressive vignettes. They're not really stories. They're not really poetry. They're just kind of daily stories. I call them the blue collar gods about how certain people, supernatural and natural, intervene in the lives of others and with great consequences. Mm. That's also available on Amazon.com. All right, and so they would just look up your name to find that? Yeah, if you go to goodmorningsurvivors.com or you follow me on Facebook, uh, there I, I'm always pimping that stuff at some point. <laughs> at some point, right? Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So uh, as you look toward, I know you're, you're, you're in their master's right now, and uh, you'll, be, uh, you'll be doing some other things. Are, is your master's thesis for that program, it is a master's program, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so your master's thesis, is that actually a published work that you have to do for it? It's called a publishable novel. They are very clear that they don't publish you. Right. But the people who are judging it are people in the field, so they have a sense of what is worth selling and what's not. So, yeah, I have to get through these six terms and produce a full novel that they believe collectively is is able to be published. Right. And, um, and then it's up to you to see it gets published. So. Yep. So yep. that's awesome. It would be nice if I had that guarantee, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be hard. That would be hard to do for a university. Uh, well, I, I will say, listening to the graduates 
from Seton Hill this this term. My first, you have to go before the committee and you have to defend your thesis, which means you have to talk about your work, you have to read from your work, and then answer questions from the professors. There were some fantastic works of fiction coming out of this graduating class. Uh, and I, on my website, I'm going to list some people that you should look out for, because if you're on the ground floor with them, you're going to get some great work. Mm. Uh, there's one one woman that I, I met there, Stephanie Wojtovich, who I feel is kind of like Anne Rice if um, if if she were sung by Janis Joplin. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's <laughs> rock and roll horror. It's very cool the way she reads. It's dynamic, and the content is, is like nothing I've heard before. And there are a couple other folks, but she's a great example of the quality of work that comes out of that group. Mm. It, it's 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 stellar work. Mm. So I'm looking forward to the challenge of, of even meeting their quality. Awesome. Well, you know, and and you have six uh, six terms to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah. No. No. It, it, three years will go by fast. So is, that, is is it going to be over three years or is it a shorter program than that? It's uh, it's a little over two years. Okay. So years. typical master's program, they're residencies, so it's not like I'm doing everything online. I have to go and take these classes in Greensburg, PA. Um, but it, those are the first uh, term was a great week and and it it was very exhausting, but I learned a lot. Mm, that that's awesome. That's awesome. Mm. I know I took a, I did a master's down at Westchester. Um, and they don't have an they don't really have an MFA program. It's English, but your master it's it's English with a creative writing emphasis. And so uh, mm-hmm. my master's thesis was a collection of poetry. Oh, um, I initially went in writing short stories and then switched to poetry because I absolutely loved writing poetry. Um, and then my collection my thesis was a collection of poetry. So that's a selective skill. That yeah. poetry scares the hell out of me. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I found that uh, it, it appeals very much to my creative slash mathematical side. I'm, I, I seem to be a, a split personality. You know, I'm, one half of me loves the math and the other half loves being creative. And I think poetry has a very mathematical element to it. So That's very true. Yeah, so, good point. So. And since I have a learning disability when it comes to numbers, that's probably why it scares the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, although you do have to pay attention to word count as a writer. True. So, so, uh, so Jay, uh, what else do you want to talk about here as far as uh, your work and where they can find <laughs> So We've been all over the place. We can keep going here. No, um, we we uh, talk about uh, Chronic Rift, which we're both a part of. We, oh, yeah. Uh, had some fantastic uh, conversations about $6 million Man and Batman and all the stuff we watched growing up. Yeah. So it's been great working with John Drew and, and the Chronic Rift regulars and just telling those stories. Have you been? Have really you been? Cool. You, you've been on. A, if, you've been on a lot of their that, podcasts. I, I was on in the beginning quite a bit when uh, John first started. There were the roundtable sessions. Okay, we would sit around and, and bring something to the table, as John would say, and, and I would pimp something that I saw on a movie or a television show or something. Uh, since the since it shifted over, John's been nice enough to ask me to come on and talk about uh, shows from time to time. We talk about zombies. I'm kind of Along with uh, Blumberg, Arnold Blumberg, I guess he he kind of calls me too. So it's nice to be part of that little group. Oh, nice! Yeah, we uh, haven't been on any of their shows yet, but we are part of the whole uh, the network of shows. And mm-hmm. I know that you know. I actually I met John one time. He was at a short. I think he was at the very first Shore Leave I went to, 
And then after yeah, John's that, a good guy. And then I don't think he's been back to short leave, or not that I've seen him. No, I don't think he travels a whole lot. He's a he's a teacher. He doesn't like you. He doesn't have a whole lot of time to travel. And I think he he pretty much saved up all of his milk money to go to Dragon Con last year to meet Lee Majors and Lindsey Wagner. Yeah, <laughs> so he cashed those chips in. That was yeah. that was a good bet for him. That oh, was a yeah. lifelong dream. Oh yeah, and not to mention he was able to run a panel with him. That was awesome. Oh yeah, it was it was like Christmas. Look at his face in the video. <laughs> I know interviewing those two. It was he was twelve years old. He just unwrapped the freaking <laughs> RC race set. He was. <laughs> it was great. My my my, fa- my favorite part of that video was when they when you got the guy that voiced the computer to actually do the computer voice again. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he he taps into something that we all we all retain about our childhood that that love of those shows. I, I and I've had conversations with him where I can't remember a title or even a story, but I remember how I felt watching those shows mm. and how cool it was to to see Lee Majors kick a Sasquatch's butt. I don't remember anything else. It was just awesome. John will quote chapter and verse about, you know, he knew who was on the production team. He knew all the supporting cast members and all this other great stuff. You just, it's so infectious to talk to somebody who has that passion. Uh, and I, John, John, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm just impressed that people can retain all that stuff. Yeah, I... I I'm not. No, I'm not there. Miles, I, I, Miles is there with Star Trek. You, I mean, you, you drop one line. I bet he can quote it, the episode and tell you who said it and to whom. And I just, I'm not, I'm not that way with, with really any. I don't think any genre. That whole group of friends, my, I swear, if you talk to Keith the Canada or John or Orenthal Hawkins, and you get on a topic. They will know the most detailed information about that show. He just sent me. Orenthal Hawkins just sent me this whole th- whole series of Gotchamon on DVD. I just saw because the, he got the Blu-ray. He upgraded, so he's got to send it somewhere. And I'm okay. Like, what? Why did you send this to me? <laughs> and he starts quoting off all the stuff about it, so I knew what I was going getting into. Like, dude, I'm going to forget 90 percent of what you just said as right. soon as this conversation is over. <laughs> I don't know how you retain this over the, over the decades, but God bless you, man. That you know, I think, I, I'll watch a show. I don't remember Ghost Ghostbusters is my go-to movie. I just remember that I haven't seen it in in, in probably over two years. I can't quote it anymore. That scares me. Yeah. But I, I I bet if I if I talk to one of those guys, they could quote it better than I can at this point. Oh I, yeah, you know, I think part of the issue for me um, is when I grew up. Um, I grew up essentially without television. Like, my parents had TV till I was about six. And then when I went to college, I got another TV. So, you know, I grew up doing a ton of reading. You know, Heinlein, mm-hmm. Norton, Tolkien, Asimov. You know, I, I delved into the that. And so I can tell you a lot of those stories. But I think because mm-hmm. of that, when you talk about, like, Six Million Dollar Man and, you know, uh, Star Trek and a ton of the other 70s and 80s shows, I just missed it. You know, I was like, it's just not there. Like, I still haven't watched a ton of them, and mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, so it's a whole different uh, perspective, I guess. I think you're right. I mean, a lot of us were, were raised on visual media as though that were that was going to be the next big thing. Yeah. And I think there was an attitude for a while, particularly in the '70s, especially around the time Star Wars came out, that we needed to start paying attention to film and TV and put down those stupid books because they're print is dead and I, you know, that is an evil thought but especially you know, when as a you're writer a kid, 
and you yeah you know if if you want to be a writer kid be a screenwriter mm. don't get into radio because there's nothing for that but uh writing for writing for Battlestar Galactica that was a that was a goal for a lot of my friends writing a novel not so much so there was that definitely that that culture that said pay attention to Battlestar Galactica and Space 1999 cuz that's your literature kids that's what you're going to get moving forward. I don't. I don't agree with that. But it, it, when you're grown up, the, the the flash and the explosions tend to make you stupid. Oh, yeah. Tend to pull you in and yeah. keep you there. So, yeah. yeah, I was a child of Star Wars. So, if not for Star Wars, I wouldn't have gone on to um, to read at all, right. <laughs> really, right. because I thought, you know, there's a story there, and I really want to learn how to tell that. Right, but then you know I also liked Buck Rogers in the 25th century, you know, and that was one of the worst pieces of crap on television for two years. Yeah, so. but it was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Erin Gray, I, I owe her a great deal of thanks. <laughs> well, you know the um, uh, in a lot of ways, you know what you were saying while while being very true in the in the 70s, maybe early 80s when the internet came along in. You know, the late 80s, after we got out of the bulletin board era and into the actual web, and we began to do uh, some of that media, suddenly the internet has begun to revive, in a way, some of the movie genre and some of the ways you can tell even short vignettes of stories, like in YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. And podcasting has certainly brought back the radio drama into a new, or brought, it, uh, brought the radio drama patio drama into a new era and even as mm-hmm. and even has given authors a way to communicate their stories in a whole new fashion that yeah. that really kind of takes that whole thing that print is going to be dead uh, has kind of taken it and kind of flipped it on its head absolutely i think back in the 70s there was an arrogance about technology that it was going to solve everything and it was going to transform media and i i'm glad to report that it obviously was not the case. I don't think back then they would have anticipated audio drama coming back or even audio books coming uh, into their own using computers. I think there wasn't a connection between old media and new, but it was nice to see that you not only you have stories to tell, but you have a way of connecting actors with new material mm. in ways that they never had. You had a lot of people who if they wanted to be an actor, their greatest aspiration was to be involved in community theater. That was it. Right. And hopefully there was a part in that that they could play. Otherwise, there would be chorus again. But I have actors on four continents now who have the opportunity to play Hamlet, to to play Streetcar, to, to be the character they've always wanted to, but they just didn't look the part. Or they didn't mm-hmm. have time to commit to 30 hours of rehearsal. Right. Or they didn't live in Melbourne, or whatever the problem was. The the technology has, has transformed art in such a profound way that you're able to get the Scott Siglers and the Tim Morrises and the Brian Lincolns and all of these great writers who are creating an incredible work and get it before the masses. So your literature ha- has really started to find its renaissance. Right. There were people who would never have gotten through the cattle shoots of publication through the main publishers, but they're reaching audiences because the internet has democratized entertainment in, in that way. So I'm, I'm glad to be uh, functioning and able to, to deal with folks who, 
who love the medium and who are able to participate in a way that's never been done before. I love I love that word the democracy the democratization of of, <laughs> of, of putting out content. Um, mm-hmm. No no longer are you limited to your six publishers being the gateway to actually being published, but now. You know, you can pull something like Scott Ziegler or many other writers too that have yeah. that have just uh, have flourished without, without you know, without you know going through the big guys. And you know, you, you meant you made the question earlier on. I don't know if we were recording that or not, but the idea that if you can make the money flow the right direction, that's almost just as significant as to actually getting published by a big name publisher. Mm-hmm. Well, I think everybody needs to to have that support network. I think that we do look at traditional public publishers as the gatekeeper of great art or at least commercial art. But I think that the internet has allowed us to do that long audition. Whereas as a writer, I was brought up that I had to write a manuscript, mail it out, wait six months, send it out again, wait six months or whatever. But if you're telling good stories whether they be audio drama or patio novels or whatever, someone's going to notice and they're going to be able to say, I can capitalize that. And through Facebook, being able to network with these people, getting to know them and know what their needs are, as opposed to them being faceless entities on the other end of a post box, I think that gatekeeper concept is going away. Good work will always find a way to reach its, its, its market, whether it's like HG World, which hasn't made a penny, or the stuff that Scott Sigler's doing that is just fantastic. So depending on the talent, depending on the market, I think eventually HG World or whatever we're doing, everyone who's involved in the show, they've demonstrated a level of talent that's going to get them a job where that revenue is going to go to them. Yeah, absolutely. I've just been been blessed that they've chosen to work with me and they're at a point where they could. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that. And that is awesome. I think, I think you're right. And, Oh, just because we don't go through the gatekeeper doesn't mean that people aren't still expecting the high quality work. They're just uh, there's mm-hmm. um, the other thing that's uh, the the blessing about not going through the gatekeeper is that stuff is being published that may not have gotten published because of content, uh, because people don't think that it's or some publisher doesn't think that it's the next big thing, and so they aren't publishing. I mean, what publisher these days is going to publish uh, an audio drama that? is set back in the 1930s in a 1930s style, right? Mm-hmm. True. So um, this gives you an audience for it. But. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the, this whole concept of, of, if I take it back to Seton Hill University, there's a lot of talk about um, workshops. People have their work, they bring them up to class for review. And sometimes the reviews can be brutal. Sometimes they're, they're very honest, they're very supportive, but... It definitely shows you all the flaws. A lot of writers are very scared of that process. They don't want to share their art with the world. They don't want they don't want their darlings to be destroyed by other artists or feel inferior. One of the things about not being published, but not having to go through that process, is that there's a very low bar of expectation. Mm. So HG World goes out there. It's out there. Whoever's listening to it has every right to come back to me and say, "This sucks." Don't do this again. Right. And we get that. We get a lot of people who are, are very much, this is awesome, or this is sucks, or this sucks. But also in the middle, we have this body of, of listeners who will distinguish between the two. And a lot of patio novelists, a lot of audio dramatists will have people who come back 
and hold them accountable as they hold me accountable for any time that if they've spent an hour with my show, they feel that free to give me criticism about how they spent that hour. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same thing with your show and John's show where you ask them to commit an hour of their lives to what you're creating. So they're going to come to you and they're going to tell you every blemish that is on your product. <laughs> and that to me is, I know that steeled me to any workshop I'm ever going to go through. Yeah. You know, here's my work. What do you think? Yeah. I've got some Facebook comments and I've got stuff on iTunes that, yeah, I would have given up writing a long time ago if that had crushed my soul. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, we, we, we know we're doing good work because people are coming back. We know we're doing good work because people are taking the time to say not only what's awesome, but what sucks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that, uh, for, for us, it's not so much the content we're putting out, but it is what we say, you know, if they disagree with something that we say on the show, they, they're, they dish it right back. And, uh, and that's, and that's, that's kind of where for us, where our listener feedback episode, because we're able to kind of respond to that. And, uh, we can be chastised when when we get something wrong, and uh, I think mm-hmm. that well. And I think for me, if a listener is willing to commit an hour to my show or your show, and and they and they take the time to give me feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, then that is invaluable investment. And even yeah. though I may not like what they have to say, I'm going to at least consider it. You know? Yeah. Because that's well. I mean, we're in an environment where anybody with a microphone and an internet connection can have a show. Oh yeah. Let's break it down to, to its bare minimum. I know a lot of people who who don't have anything to say at all, but they're very proud of their podcasts. <laughs> and the worst that they can get is silence. Some people think that you know silence it means uh, support or acquiescence to what they have to say, but really that's that's the death knell for our industry. Oh yeah. If you're putting two or three hours a week into a show and your numbers aren't there and no one cares, is it really worth continuing to do? Yeah. Uh, but at least in our case, you know, we've got people who regularly come back. They, they make our shows part of their lives in, in some modest way. And we deliver a service that they feel that they're comfortable. They feel that they're part of our community. And that's, that's the greatest part of this whole process is that they feel included. They feel not an entitlement, but an ownership in a way to the art that means we're doing something right yeah absolutely yeah absolutely couldn't agree with you more well jay we do need we do got to wrap up the interview here we're encroaching on an hour and uh i do need to get going because my wife is going to be leaving for haiti tonight so but um at nine o'clock so i have time but um well, yeah, not a whole lot. Dude. Not a whole lot, but well, we we spent we spent time together today. But this was planned. She was actually going to leave tomorrow, but the snowstorm oh. has her scurrying out of here tonight. So we're getting snow oh, in the yeah. east. Depending when this airs, we're getting snow in the east like tomorrow. So but, what's she doing in Haiti? Uh, she works. She works. Um, she's been working there since uh, early two thousands, and around two thousand ten, she started an organization called the Haitian Connection Network. And what uh-huh. she does is basically facilitates an online learning center that allows Haitians with high school degrees and the English language to earn a two-year degree online. Um, and then she networks them into the job force. Um, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really good. And, uh, you know, I think they're looking at 75 to 80% of the Haitians that graduate, they're able to get jobs. And we just look at it in, in, oh. when you look at Haiti and a 
a place where there's about 70% unemployment, 75% unemployment. If we can get Haitians employed where they can earn their own living, that gives them a dignity and enables them to supply not only for themselves, but their families and even their communities. We've kind of seen an impact. So it's our little way of kind of putting a, a dent into that. And so uh, she heads this organization called the Haitian Connection Network and uh, it's grown. It's grown quite a bit since its inception in 2010. So that's fantastic. That kind of puts what we do on on the side into sharp relief. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, <laughs> it certainly does. Uh, we we do this for fun, but uh, you know we certainly Parker uh, on the other side of the microphone, dude. Uh, we have. We that's have. Sad and, ass. Yeah, she was. She was an actor, and she initially did some of the. Uh, the voice work that did our intros and exits. And she's been in the podcast before. Her and Em went at it on a uh, girls' night out, they called it, or something like that. Uh, but cool. um, uh, Em took over the voice work from her, so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm sad I, I couldn't talk with her tonight. She's yeah. one of our actors. I, I miss talking with her. Yeah, so what? What uh, before we go, what, what role does Em play on AC World? M does a couple of voices. Primarily, she plays the role of Sarge, a kick-ass Air Force sniper who takes no shit and gives a lot of it. That describes M pretty well. Pretty much. It's typecast. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, Jay, uh, where can people find out all about you and your work? And uh, if they want to you know, delve into some of it and uh, follow you, how can they do that? Well, if... We haven't bored them away yet. You can go to goodmorningsurvivors.com to see the list of tracks for HG World. Uh, you can go to my Facebook page, Jay Smith, audio dramatist and author, or just look up Jay Smith and um, uh, look for me there. Uh, I'm prim- primarily I'm on Twitter as J. Andrew Smith. But I usually just hang out on Facebook. So if you want to learn more, go to the website, or you can ping me on on my Facebook page. Yeah, absolutely awesome. Well, thanks, Jay, for joining us here at the Sci-Fi Diner tonight. And uh, finally, we were able to do an interview. We've been talking for quite some time about having you on, and it just never happened. So, Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Scott. Yeah. It's good talking to you. Yeah, it's good talking with you, and we'll see you at Farpoint, I guess. January, or no, February 14th, 15th, and 16th, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going down the 15th because of Valentine's Day, but that's not the real reason. My wife will be in Haiti again, so. Ah, I'll be down right, one day. But, but. All right, man. You, man. You have good chatting, and um, and I'll let you know when this goes live. I'm guessing it's going to be next week. So, Groovy. So, awesome. Right. Well, hey, thanks for chatting. Good to hear from you and find out a little bit more about you. All right. Take care, man. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for visiting the Sci-Fi Diner. We hope you enjoyed the food and the service and the conversations. If you'd like to share your thoughts regarding what we've talked about, or tell us what you're watching or reading, flip open your communicators and contact us at 1-888-508-4343, or click the SpeakPipe link at scifidinerpodcast.com, or send an MP3 or typed email to scifidinerpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation on our Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner. We'll share your thoughts on our listener feedback show. If you'd like to support the diner beyond the conversation, you can always throw some coins in the tip jar at sci-fi diner podcast.com. <laughs>